The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. So I think it's so important when the diagnosis is made, you refer to an endocrine surgeon just for a conversation. If that happened with every case, not all patients get surgery. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from the April issue of Annals Internal Medicine titled Mortality and Morbidity in Mild Primary Hyperparathyroidism Results from a 10-Year Prospective Randomized Controlled Trial of Parathyroidectomy Versus Observation. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. Herb Chen, who's the chair of the Department of Surgery at the Hearsing School of Medicine of UAB and past president of the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons. We hope that you will learn and enjoy this podcast. Herb, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I found this a very interesting article, uh, What to Do with Mild Hyperparathyroidism. I think in order to put this paper into context, let's define what is mild hyperparathyroidism and what is not mild hyperparathyroidism. Bob, thanks so much for having me here. I think how we would define mild hyperparathyroidism is that when we see a patient with primary hyperparathyroidism, we typically divide them in what we call classic or mild. And classic, we would define as someone who has clearly an elevated calcium and an elevated PTH versus mild would be patients who have either a normal calcium and an elevated PTH, what we call normal calcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, or someone with an elevated calcium but a normal parathyroid hormone level, which we would call normal hormonal primary hyperparathyroidism. So collectively, when you read the literature, those groups of patients are typically called mild hyperparathyroidism. Uh, in this study, if I read it right, it looked to me like they did have mild hypercalcemia and mild increase in parathyroid hormone, which you would you might not call mild. Is that right? Probably I would not call mild uh, based on who they included in their study. And of course, they provide they don't really provide the calcium and PTH level together, which mm -hmm. is so important in the diagnosis. And so it's unclear to me. I'm sure some of the patients included the ones I just described as mild, but they may have included patients with an elevated PTH and an elevated calcium, which I would call classic, but because the levels weren't that high above normal, they would put classified as mild in this study. The one thing that I think is clear here is that they excluded anybody who had any symptoms of hyperparathyroidism. And perhaps we could just go over that just to be sure that if I'm a primary care physician, I see a patient who has a calcium of 10.6, I get a PTH and it's mildly elevated. Does this fit into the patients that they studied or not? 
So what do you see when you get referrals? What are the signs and symptoms you mostly see? For patients with hyperparathyroidism, the most common symptom is fatigue by far, like 95% or more. But other classic symptoms include kidney stones, you know, osteoporosis, reduce uh, creatinine clearance or some uh, kidney uh, dysfunction, bone pain, joint pain, psychiatric symptoms. So your classic bone stones, moans and groans. And those are clearly people who have symptoms. Now in this study, they included patients who had, uh, they don't define PTH as I mentioned, uh, but the calcium, a slightly elevated calcium between 10.4 and 11.2. They had to be between the ages of 50 to 80 and they couldn't have had any previous neck surgery, no kidney stones, no serious medical condition, no reduced creatinine clearance. And so really these are a, real, a, a select group of patients who they are saying are, have mild disease and don't have symptoms. And the way I understand it is you found, find a mildly elevated calcium, probably check a PTH, it's a little bit elevated, but you can't get any symptoms out of them. So the question then becomes, do they need surgery? That's a great question. And I think it's important to know um, because a lot of people listening you know, might not have had a patient who had had surgery or had surgery themselves to understand when we're signing up patients for surgery, what are we really signing them up for? And when this study was done many years ago, surgery was different than it is really today. Today, when you're talking about doing a parathyroid operation, we're talking about an outpatient procedure done, um, it can be done even, even under local anesthesia, but really if they, you use general anesthesia, it's a very light general anesthesia. The surgery is less than an hour. The complication rate is extremely low, less than 1% in experienced hands. Patients take no narcotics after surgery. They just take Tylenol, Advil. We let them return to work the next day if they want. The only restriction we put on is no heavy lifting or heavy exertion for three days. Are most of these adenomas, we're not talking about parathyroid hyperplasia, I assume? Yeah, about, about 10, 10 to 15% of patients will have parathyroid hyperplasia overall. It's a little higher in patients with mild disease, just to be quite honest. So probably close to 20% in patients with mild disease. But whether it's hyperplasia versus adenoma, surgery, very effective, low complication rates, especially if you have an experienced surgeon. Right. Uh, okay, so let's go, let's go to this study. So as I understand this study, they collected these people and then they convinced them because you, they didn't do a sham surgery, they, they convinced them to be randomized. And I think, you know, that, that is, um, it's a challenge to do a clinical trial where you're randomizing them to a procedure and a not procedure, right? Right. That's very hard. And uh -huh. so one thing is got to congratulate them. They were able to do a, uh, the study. And uh, certainly when they did this study initiated, you know, many, you know, many decades ago, they wasn't really powered to study mortality. It was because if you think about studies in endocrinology that are powered for mortality, right? We want to look at the effect on diabetes or those are usually thousands of patients. Right. Here we're talking less than a hundred in each arm and then with follow-up, you know, almost 60 in each arm. So it's like to be able to comment on mortality is, you know, I, I just can't see how we can comment on mortality. So we, we have, have some primary outcomes and some secondary outcomes. And we have 
some crossovers. There, there, there was an allowance for someone who was randomized to no surgery under certain conditions to have surgery. A significant number, you know, I think the rec like there's over 15%, I think, crossed over. Mm -hmm. So for all those reasons, I think it's really hard to interpret the conclusions. And although I think it's great that the um, investigators did the study and want to congratulate them, I think we have to be very careful in what conclusions we make from it. Right. Because, you know, although they study uh, mortality and morbidity, a key thing they didn't study is quality of life. And there are so many studies, including some from our group, that show when you compare surgery to no surgery that patients have improved quality of life with mild hyperparathyroidism. And in fact, what's so interesting, this is a study that I did you know, a, a while ago, our group showed that when you compare patients with classic hyperparathyroidism to those with mild, actually patients with mild hyperparathyroidism report a greater improvement in quality of life when compared to those even with classic. Okay. So we have this study and the way they interpret it, as, as I understand, is they found no statistically or clinically significant difference in cardiovascular or cerebrovascular events with the small numbers, and they found no difference in uh, peripheral fractures. Now, you make, you, you make the point that there are things they didn't measure, and uh, when they started this study, uh, a lot of people weren't looking at uh, quality of life uh, as an important uh, factor. I'm trying to remember, did they notice a, a much difference in uh, kidney stones between the two groups? Well, they excluded patients with kidney stones. So no, I'm, talk, I'm talking about subsequent kidney oh, stones. Yeah, I mean, when, when we look at our patients, about, I think, 20 to 25% of patients referred for surgery with kidney stones. Obviously, those at risk for kidney stones with any calcification stuff, I think, were excluded as well. So, so it's clear that patients with kidney stones should not, even when their labs are mild, you shouldn't, you know, make, draw any conclusion from this paper because they're not part of this study. Right. And in fact, you know, hopefully we have a study that we hope to um, submit and publish soon, focusing on patients who have kidney stones and primary hyperparathyroidism. And what's so interesting is in our data, and this is um, over 1,500 patients in this study, that if you look at patients with kidney stones and those with hyperparathyroidism, if you delay the parathyroidectomy for whatever reason, it increases the chance that that patient will have more kidney stones and actually have a greater need to have any cardiovascular interventions for cardiovascular disease. Right. We know that hypercalcemia in and of itself is a risk factor for vascular disease from a lot of, for, for, from a lot of different things. And hyperparathyroidism is, is the type of disease that will hang around for quite some time and give people a chance to get uh, calcified coronary arteries and, and cerebral arteries, uh, et cetera. So their results are that they don't find a large difference over the 10 years other than about 15 of the patients in the observation group eventually had a, uh, had a need for a parathyroidectomy. How do we put this into perspective? So let's, let's think about the people who refer patients to you. And then, uh, so let's look at the uh, primary care physician or the endocrinologist who's going to refer to you. 
does this have any influence on them? And as a surgeon, does this have any influence on your decision about watchful waiting versus uh, surgery as soon as is reasonable? One pet peeve of mine with regard to this disease is that once the diagnosis is made, then really the only curative treatment is surgery. So when the patient has to make an informed decision about their own health, we just think the patient should be provided all the available information to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And unless a referring doctor feels comfortable talking about surgery, we feel as endocrine surgeons, we should meet the patient. Mm -hmm. We don't operate on all patients that we see. Mm-hmm. We want, we have an informed um, conversation about, you know, what benefit will they have? What are the risks? And we have to weigh, you know, everyone has different factors in their life. You know, they'll weigh symptoms, you know, how much does it impact their life? And what's so interesting is that when we see patients, all, often their spouses are the ones that comment on the change in a lot of their energy levels and their spouses and stuff after surgery. And sometimes the spouses are the ones that are advocating that they have the procedure because they've seen a change in the person, how their uh, quality of life is. So I think it's so important when the diagnosis is made that you refer to an endocrine surgeon just for a conversation so they can have an informed decision. And I think if that happened with every case, you would find that not all patients get surgery. Could you categorize uh, for us the people who decide not to have surgery right away, and do they come back to you? When we make decision, you know, collectively not to pursue surgery, it can be for a variety of reasons, either that they don't feel it's really impacting their life right now, or sometimes they have other stuff going on in their life that they just want, don't, you know, really have time, they say, to do this. And others just are really skeptical of having surgery. And clearly those, those tend to be the patients who don't have any symptoms or don't have a severe enough symptom that they think it merits an operation. What I think is helpful is when those patients get a chance to talk to other patients with this disease. So there's a, there are many um, social media platforms of patients who have hyperparathyroidism when they talk to each other. They will often come back for surgery when they speak to others because sometimes they're scared of surgery too and they just want to talk to someone who's had it. So of the patients who don't have surgery, I would say in my practice, probably at least 25% to 50% eventually come back for surgery. Or that there, in many instances, their doctor, their primary care doctor convinces them to have surgery. Is that they're watching something like their bone density or they're watching some measurement which gets worse and they send them over. And when I speak to our, you know, I lecture the medical students here on primary hyperparathyroidism when they come through their surgery clerkship. And I often make an analogy to diabetes uh, with them is that, you know, you can have someone with, you know, an elevated A1C and, you know, I ask them, do we need to treat that? They say, absolutely. And I said, well, they haven't had any complications yet. And they said, we want to prevent the complications. And so I said, well, what about someone who has hyperparathyroidism? And, you know, a lot of times we get students who say they don't you know, want to operate or consider surgery because they don't have any complications. And I said, so should we wait for someone to get a fracture before we fix it when that totally could have been preventable? So I want uh, and I think part of the barrier is, is if we had a drug, an effective drug, we have Senecalcid is not really effective for primary hyperparathyroidism. 
but it's sometimes used. If we, but if we did have effective drug, I suspect we would be treating everybody with it mm -hmm. because the perception that taking a drug for the rest of your life is better than a less than one hour minor surgical procedure. We started off talking about the advances in surgery and I think it'd be worthwhile now that we've had this conversation for you to explain to, uh, and mostly internists listen to this, mm -hmm. uh, residents, uh, some medical students, how has parathyroid surgery advanced a great deal since the surgery was done for these people? So what, what are the advances that make it such an easy, a relatively easy procedure for someone who does it all the time? Obviously, we don't, we don't want to go to a surgeon who doesn't do this on a regular basis. Yeah, we have so much technology now that helps us. In addition to, you know, as you pointed out, having the experienced surgeon, we have a lot of tools in our toolbox uh, to help us interoperatively. Probably the most important one is called interoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring. That if we take a patient to the operating with primary hyperparathyroidism, if we take out the um, offending gland or glands, their PTH should drop by 50% in five minutes. So we check PTH to make sure that when the patient leaves the operating room, we've taken care of the problem. We have the use of a radio-guided detector, a probe that we utilize that can measure metabolic activity of parathyroids. So when we're in the operating room, we know the parathyroid gland that we take out is abnormal based on the time metabolic activity. So we can measure that real time. And the newest technology is that there's an autofluorescence um, uh, detector that can detect the fluorescence of parathyroid glands to clearly distinguish them from sometimes parathyroids can re resemble lymph nodes or other things. And we have great imaging too, that we can use imaging to find the parathyroid glands before surgery uh, if we need to. And so, so all that, all of these advances have really changed the way we approach surgery. And, uh, and I'm not even talking about the advances in anesthesia that have happened. Mm -hmm. That has a, uh, you know, a big contribution as well. Many, many years ago when I went to medical school, the concern was uh, the recurrent laryngeal nerve and things like that. I assume that as you were describing the ways of identifying the glands, that also makes it much less likely that you, you would hit any uh, other things that are in the neck. Yeah, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, the risk of that a permanent injury is 1% or less. It's really low. There, are, there is technology to monitor the recurrent nerve. It's, um, it's not been shown in a randomized prospective trial to improve, uh, reduce the um, nerve injury rate for parathyroid surgery, just because it's so rare to happen. But there are surgeons who utilize that technology, which is again, another example of how technology has um, changed the way we do the operation. Herb, thank you so much for uh, shedding light on this important study because it raises the conversation that we had that primary hyperparathyroidism, even when mild, might not stay mild. Uh, and there are reasons to consider having the patient talk to surgeon to discuss what it means to have hyperparathyroidism. Yes, I totally agree. And I think, again, it was a great study, but I think it's important how we interpret this study because I'm afraid that many people will interpret this study and just look, oh, if you have, if your numbers aren't that bad, we're not going to send you to surgery because nothing bad's going to happen. And as we talked, that's not what this study says. 
Right. So it, again, it's important to, um, to allow uh, patients who have the diagnosis to speak to an endocrine surgeon to really uh, learn about what the option is and if it's right for them. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thanks so much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This study looked at patients who had mild hyperparathyroidism in the early part of the century, randomized to parathyroidectomy versus observation. And this study looks at the 10-year outcomes. As Dr. Chen points out, surgery has changed fairly dramatically since then. And uh, this study excluded most patients with hyperparathyroidism. We have to recognize that 15% of the people in the observation arm did have to cross over to surgery at some point. The study does not include patients who had kidney stones, so that continues to be an absolute indication for surgery. Dr. Chen makes a passionate case that patients with hyperparathyroidism should talk to an endocrine surgeon about the pros and cons of surgery unless we as internists are very comfortable with that conversation. He raises very many interesting questions about how we should be dealing with hyperparathyroidism in 2022. We hope that you learned something and enjoyed this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.